Welcome to the C-Suite podcast that we're recording at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam. I'm Russell Goldsmith and together with Romy Wilson, uh, we will be chatting to a number of the speakers and attendees from the conference. We hope that through these short conversations, we'll be able to provide you with a real flavor and understanding of the topics and issues being discussed here at the event. So I'm now joined uh, by Ian Stewart, UK CEO at HSBC. Uh, Ian, welcome back to the show. Um, Thank you very much. Yeah, well, it's actually three and a half years since we spoke last, which was at Mad World, and that was about mental health. Um, Goodness. I know. It's a long time. A long time ago, yeah. yeah, and yeah. A lot's happened in that time. Well, a lot for mental health with the pandemic. A lot of people, you know, have really had a difficult three years. So, yeah, it's still very much front and centre of our minds. Yeah, indeed. Now, different com- conference, obviously a very different topic. Yeah. Um, you were on stage just earlier talking about HSBC's uh, UK's acquisition of Silicon Valley Bank UK, which happened in March um, for the cost of one pound. Um, Talk us through that whole process. How do you go about buying a bank over a weekend? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I I know we don't have long, but let me try and condense it down. Um, It really started on the Friday when we started to see some deposits moving in. Um, Nothing else happened on the Friday. I got up on Saturday morning. The Bank of England had made the decision that no longer. Um, Various calls first thing on Saturday morning. I sent an email to Sam Woods, the deputy head of the Bank of England, at 10.33 a.m. I remember it very clearly. And then my boss, Noel Quinn, put in a call thereafter just to, like, we're interested. But that wasn't the reason for my email. My email was a lot of depositors' money was at risk. And I was starting to get calls, people very anxious. Cut a long story short, nothing really happened on the Saturday. It It was bizarre. With various calls... The Treasury then appointed Rothschilds as advisors about 5 p.m., still nothing. Got up on Sunday morning quite early. We were told we were getting access to the data room. That didn't happen. We couldn't get in. In all honesty, we just couldn't get in. But we then got access about 12.30 on the Sunday. And really from 12.30 through till 6, it was, it was really busy. I had my very best team on the due diligence. People say, how can you only do due diligence for five, six hours? Nobody asked me about the quality. It was really good quality, great team on it. And we got to a position really about 6, 6.30 p.m. on the Sunday, which is we wanted to buy the bank. We didn't ask for any government support. We weren't offered any government support. It was as clean as a whistle. Um, but the thing we knew we were going to have to do is we were going to have to inject a lot of liquidity into the bank on the Monday morning. And that was about two and a half to three billion pounds. So it's a big ask. So we had to get some carve-outs from the PRA, which we got, got the deal done. And I, I didn't know we had the deal really until about 11.30 p.m. Signed the piece of paper at 6.38, I think, on the Monday morning. Bought a bank. Is that one of your most stressful weekends? It was, it, actually, the Saturday was very stressful. Because I think, why is nobody speaking to me? Like, we're really trying to help here. And I was like, what's going on? Um, Sunday was just intense. I mean, you... I don't, I don't think Sunday was stressful because you, you're just going from one call to the next call all day. And it, it, it was okay, but I had a very, very, very good team around me who were very helpful. And then you have to go through the governance process. So really between about 7pm and 10pm was just board meeting after board meeting, getting everyone comfortable. And again, it wasn't just me. Noel Quinn, the group CEO, was sterling throughout, um, helping pushing it along for the group holdings board the UK board. So yeah, it was a really good team effort, but delighted, absolutely delighted. Sure. Now, um, why was it so important for you strategically? 
Well, let's not beat about the bush. This was opportunistic. We never thought Silicon Valley Bank was going to come up. But we're in this market. This is a really important part of the sector for us. But I thought that this would give us really a leap forward of about maybe four years. Uh, we get a lot of industry know-how. We would get really good people. And that's exactly what we've got. We've actually bought a very, very good bank in the UK. I'm delighted with the people. I'm delighted with the products. I'm delighted about the quality of the book. So now it's a case of get it integrated away from the US systems into the UK. And then as soon as we've got that done, we can really start to build out. But putting together what Silicon Valley Bank had, plus our product capability, we can now go from seed funding to IPO. You don't have to go outside the bank. So I think it's really exciting. And then the plan to go global very quickly thereafter. So well, I was going to ask what the, what the kind of immediate plans were. I mean, can you, can you kind of share any, any insight on that? So, so first thing, we have to change the brand. So watch this space over the next few weeks. Get the integration done. And really by mid-August, we should have done that. Um, get the UK really going. And um, we're, we've, we've got some great plans for that. But we've also hired people in the US. We've hired people in Israel. And the horizontal, going right across the globe, make it a more global product, is definitely the ambition. So, yeah, we're very excited about it. It's a, it's a real opportunity. Good stuff. Now, changing a topic just very slightly, in terms of the short term, um, are there any macro trends you are seeing that are key for those startups to be aware of that obviously um, you, know, you, you support very much in the UK and across Europe? Well, the market's definitely softened, no question. The last four quarters, the market has softened. And interestingly, about two days ago, I was saying, like, what, what's our gut feel for when that market's going to come back? I, I don't think you'll see a resurrection this year. I think it may be 12 months. At the moment, I feel the market's taking stock. Um, Liquidity is a little bit more difficult, but it will come back. There's no question the market will come back and we'll be ready for that bounce back as well. So it's a pause. And if you look back over time, it doesn't matter what market you're in, the market ebbs and flows. I think we're just taking stock at the moment maybe second half of 2024 I think it'll start to come back and then let's see where we get to after that but it'll, it'll, it'll definitely resurrect that by about that point. Excellent now a uh, final question for you Ian um, one trend that is um, certainly cropping up everywhere in terms of conversations is AI how is HSBC embracing that technology in particular? Well AI is just everywhere now and it's fascinating because six months ago we would not be talking about AI it was really about late November December last year so we are still in the like okay how are we going to use this so I'll not give you the HSBC view but let me give you my personal view is that we still do an awful lot of things in banking which are very manual and I think there is a, a really big opportunity to take a lot of that manual work out and replace it with technology, dig digital products, but and that'll be driven by AI. So let me give you an example. We bank 750,000 businesses in the UK. We'll probably do about 400,000 annual reviews, reviews a year. That is just time consuming. We can get the data we need now, give the paperwork to the relationship managers. It'll probably take them half an hour, dot the I's, cross the T's, sign it off. That probably saves about four and a half hours per application. We can put all that time back into our relationship managers to spend time with customers. So really, let the humans do the extraordinary and get AI and technology to do the ordinary. But I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about the opportunities that we can deploy with AI. Ian Stewart, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks very much.
I'm here with Ugna Buracere, the CEO of Payable. Let's start with a quick intro to Payable. Uh, Payable is a paytech fintech uh, company specializing in uh, providing full rounded services for merchants. Uh, so we provide uh, uh, really anything that the merchant could uh, could need in terms of their financial uh, needs and uh, financial services. Uh, we're originally uh, an acquirer, uh, but we ventured out into uh, providing a, a platform uh, uh, completely capable of, uh, of uh, servicing any type of service that, uh, that the merchant or that our client would need. So from acquiring payment services, alternative payment methods, banking, issuing, uh, and also POS terminals. So we kind of have a, really an omniverse of, of, of payment options for, for our merchants. And you're moderating a session at the conference with guests from Lloyd's Banking Group, PPRO, where you'll just be discussing what merchants need to do to improve payments. Why is it so important for you to you know, have this discussion here at Money 2020? Sure. Um, so actually, the um, um, the way that I I'm, I'm not sure that a lot of you know people are aware, but if you want to go and present, you know, to Money 2020, you have to provide some ideas of uh, what it would be. And for us, it was actually really important to uh, to bring the idea and the uh, and and the topic of uh, what the merchants need to improve also from their own end, because there's a lot of you know focus of what the payment service providers need to do and how to you know to help the merchants you know better. But the idea of the panel is to focus on what do the merchants really need to do them themselves, you know, to improve and, and to better their uh, uh, their uh, experience, you know, for, for payments and how to manage that and, and have that in-house in the most efficient way. And what are some of those typical mistakes that merchants make when it comes to payments? So I think the, uh, the key one is that uh, sometimes merchants leave it as an afterthought and uh, payments are sort of not really you know, prioritized, which actually is a very big part of the infrastructure and is uh, the, almost the important, most important you know, thing for, uh, for the clients and for the merchants, for our clients and merchants. Uh, so uh, not leaving you know, that, uh, that as a last thought is very important and that encompasses a lot of you know, aspects. That encompasses the security, uh, the acceptance of the payments, you know, how successful you know, the payment strategy would be, what kind of payment options you, know, you need, and also very importantly, is that the client sometimes forgets that you know that they need to look into their own you know client base uh, to also kind of align with what the ethos of the companies are and their values are, and then to realize whether the payment methods that they choose, for example, for uh, for their clients would be actually used and uh, and uh, and would be uh, would be accepted and and let's say successful, you know, and would that improve you know their conversion rates and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of let's say parts of it, and this is what we discuss also on 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 the panel uh, because it's just not sort of one thing. But I think the most important thing is that. That, uh, that the merchants should really realize that it's, it's, uh, payments is the key for, for their business. Yeah, and now whilst we have you here, Payable have this morning announced the opening of a new office here in Amsterdam. Why now and why here? So uh, correct. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like we opened the office a little earlier, uh, but uh, but it is true that we're putting more focus to it uh, now. Uh, we are in the process of obtaining uh, another license here in in, in the Netherlands, and uh, for me, Netherlands was always the place of payments, and uh, I'm I'm very proud that you know that we uh, that uh, that we kind of you know looked at the history and said, okay, this is also the place you know that we want to be. But uh, rightfully so, it's it's uh, it has a lot of you know potential. It has uh, um, a lot of you know right you know partnerships you know for us so it was kind of a natural you know progression and uh, we're just about to also receive our FCA license uh, uh, in UK um, so it kind of really complements well you know with our uh, European and sort of global expansion you know, uh, for, for payable. Thanks for coming on the show. Great thank you for having me thank you. 
So I'm now joined by uh, Radak Zaleski, a partner at NetGuru. Um, Radak, um, first of all, thank you for joining the, uh, the podcast. You're moderating a session about super apps. It's a topic that we covered last year on the show um, at Money 2020 Vegas with Laura McCracken of Accenture. For anyone that didn't listen or, or, or see that episode, just to give us a quick overview about you know, what we're talking about here. Uh, so super apps, uh, by some it can be seen as a buzzword, by some it's a trend. Basically, it's a notion that you integrate more and more and more functions into the app that uh, serves a core function, and then you have those auxiliary functions, and uh, by that you are able to serve your audience better. So that's one description, right? The other description is more controversial, is that uh, companies are building those Frankensteins of products with a lot of features added and the product managers are fighting for pixel space between each other and the apps become bloated and unusable. Sometimes it's a perception of end users. For me, this is the interesting take. Which way the industry is going and how res- respectful are we towards the customers versus the business needs? Yeah, I love that description. So the panel, I mean, is, is actually going to debate kind of which is preferable, these super apps or, or having a separate banking app to manage your finances. What are the pros and cons of each? The pros of a super app is, uh, how I view it, is you can have a streamlined uh, experience for the end user with a single login without need of updating or downloading new products from your app store or whatnot, whether, whenever you're using your uh, phone, is it Apple or, or Google. Uh, with different applications, you might have a more streamlined UX towards single purpose that you're trying to achieve. And those apps, from a technical perspective, might be easier to maintain and keep coherent, right? The issue is how do you drive uh, users towards those new products, that's one thing. And the other thing is if the users want to have so many different applications for each uh, purpose, right? So these are, in my view, pros and cons. The biggest con of a super app, of course, is that if you lost track of the end user, you might end up building a huge, huge monster that tries to serve everyone, but it's not good for anyone. And I think this is something uh, product managers or business units should, you know, be very mindful of. What should be the main considerations for a fintech when designing or updating their, their customer-facing app? So again, I will, I will, maybe it's repeating myself, but uh, b- both designing and later thinking and developing the product with uh, end consumer in mind and uh, being a, a very emphatic how they are using the product. Too often businesses uh, have the final say how the product looks like because they have you know, KPIs to achieve or quotas to be met, especially their sales teams or new product teams. And uh, this, is the, can be a, this can be a trap, right? And I, will, I will give you one of examples. For example, in my retail banking application that I use, the new features are, are popping up. That's cool, thank you, my bank. But sometimes those features are really off. Like, I don't get why should I do this in my banking application. I never thought this should be used for that. But, you know, I can hide it or say no. But the issue comes whenever the app is nagging me. You know, sending me notifications, giving me a pop-ups, and I'm not really interested in it. That's a that's a bit of a, you know something you should be really really mindful of when developing a product. The other stuff is uh, you know really understanding the behaviors of end user versus your expectations, how users should behave. One of examples is that in my banking app, uh, they introduced a, a product which is insurance product that I clicked, you know, because it was pushed to me or accident. I don't really know. It triggered the marketing automation system. Instantly, someone called me on my mobile and tried to sell this product, right? It was by accident. I mean, 
I wasn't that interested, right? But it might be from the business side point of view, someone might say, oh, this is a great function. We had someone interested, you know, in buying this, right? So also think through really well how you are um, analyzing the signals from the end users and then how you are building the product. Where does NetGuru sit within this space? So we are a company that are uh, we're helping institutions, either small startups, unicorns, or uh, legacy uh, financial institutions build such applications. So we partner with them and either we develop small chunks uh, of uh, such products, like the small features, or we can build the full thing for you. So this is what we do. Uh, having uh, been in business for 15 years and developing multiple apps for different businesses, not only financial services, allows us to see uh, a lot of challenges or problems that already others had and react to them faster than you could do internally. And especially this cross-industry advantage is really helpful. For example, when we developed a taxi app in a given region and they introduced kind of a super appy features, we can really well understand how implementing features that are off the main business of a product might impact the user base, right? So these are the lessons that we can bring to the market. And so just finally, how do you see this whole space evolving? Um, so I'm pessimistic, of course, um, but then I will be optimistic. So uh, pessimistic is that I think the business is winning in a lot of ways. And the more and more I'm seeing bloated applications, bloated products, uh, with a lot of things being pushed to me. Honestly speaking, sometimes it looks like an old uh, web 1.0 internet, like you know, pop-ups, do this, click here. It's not about me, it's about business pushing something to me, right? And it can be awkward, like I just wanted to exchange currency, this is what I need your app for, and now I see it's like a you know, crypto exchange and insurance and travel insurance and this and that, I don't really get who you are, right? So uh, as a product, so this is my pessimistic view on it, right? The optimistic view is, uh, whenever I'm talking with uh, people behind those products, they're super smart and they get this. So I think it's a question of a struggle uh, with uh, sometimes too much you know, uh, optimistic business units versus people who are responsible for making the end users happy versus making business happy and finding the right balance. So in that way, I'm optimistic looking how the industry you know, evolves. Tremendous. Uh, Radek Zaleski, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. So I'm here with Emma Kisby, CEO for EMEA of Kogo. Um, Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Russell. Um, tell us a little bit about Kogo. Uh, Kogo is all about promoting conscious consumerism. So helping consumers really understand the impact of their everyday spend on people and planet. Your session tomorrow is with uh, Leon uh, Vinans, the Head of Sustainability for the Netherlands of one of your clients, ING. The session is titled Future Banking, Driving Consumer Change in the New Economy. What can we expect to hear from both of you? Well, we expect the new economy to be a green economy. I think up till now, the green economy has been a thing and, and actually it will create the foundations of our new economy. We are committed, obviously, to helping consumers understand the impact of their spend. And we do this by helping people understand their carbon footprints. And we're working with ING, who are very passionate about sustainability and the correlation between financial health and planetary health. So by working in combination, we can really achieve scale and impact when we're helping consumers to reduce their carbon emissions. In your experience, what can banks achieve from carbon footprint um, management beyond simply carbon tracking? 
I think when we started four years ago, it was a little bit of a nice to have, maybe a little feature. And uh, when we started working with the likes of NatWest and Commonwealth Bank, it was seen initially as kind of a good way to start engaging. And we've seen over the last three years that it's really achieved fantastic engagement with consumers on a very different level. We've hit like 10% penetration in the first few months. We're seeing lots of Gen Zs and millennials, especially engaging, and we're seeing increased dwell times. But it's not just about engagement. It's also about engaging beyond just the carbon insights and, and helping transition into a low carbon lifestyle. And banks have a huge opportunity to help motivate and mobilize their customers by wrapping financial products around things like helping massive deals like home retrofits or EVs. So there's a big opportunity for the banks to provide the financial support to help engage their customers in this whole challenge of sustainability, but also financially support them to achieve a low carbon lifestyle. Now you mentioned the conscious consumer. What do they want from their banks? Well, we are increasingly seeing that consumers are looking to banks and corporates, and if they are not kind of ab obliging or, or committing to ESG, then it's turning customers off. And uh, a recent survey we did showed that 25%, nearly 25% of consumers say they will consider leaving their bank if they're not demonstrating ESG commitments. So I think there is not only a just a nice to have, but actually banks have to do something, not only with their own operational footprints, but in terms of helping. So again, going back to where we started, the kind of new economy is a green economy, but everything around it, products and services and the experience, needs to fundamentally be baked into helping around sustainability. Sure, but what about those consumers then that aren't quite on that journey yet? How do you get them on board? And this is where the carbon tracking is brilliant because you don't know what you don't know. So we know that 88% of consumers say that they consider sustainability in their purchases, but only one in three actually think about carbon emissions. People don't correlate their everyday spend with actually carbon footprints or carbon emissions. They don't understand that equation. So as a starting point, by embedding our product in the mobile banking experience where people check in on their spend, they start to suddenly engage with it. So what we're seeing is people who wouldn't normally engage with this suddenly start to say, oh, this is interesting and starting to gradually engage. So the intention action gap is a big problem. They might think about sustainability. They might care about the climate crisis, which let's be honest, everyone does. And we're increasingly seeing and feeling the pains of it, but no one really knows where to start. So helping them get that first bit of understanding, that carbon literacy around the impact of their spend is a really important starting point. Excellent. Now, um, your stand itself, I, uh, I believe, has a bit of a story to it. It's a circular stand. Obviously, I don't mean that by its shape. Um, tell us a little bit bit about the uh, yeah the background to this we were here last year and when we left it was a bit depressing seeing how much waste there was just as we walked out it was like a, a bomb had hit the place and it really made us think around our not only kind of what we do as a, as a business but our own values and how we preach it and our stand is totally zero waste everything has been reused or recycled and uh, the wood is from old holiday cabins and the, the seat covers are from work uniforms everything's been used and then it will get reintegrated in the supply chain so there's no there's no waste at all and we're super proud of that and the team have done a phenomenal job because as you can see it really stands out but hopefully next year we'll see a lot more stands like this excellent emma kisby thank you so much for joining us thank you russell i'm here with oliver van landsberg Sadie, the founder and ceo of bcb group can you give us a bit of an intro to BCB Group? Sure. Hi, Romy. And uh, it's awesome to be on the podcast. Uh, BCB Group, we provide business accounts for the digital asset industry, and we do great FX OTC trading. Um, these two things have really uh, been a critical infrastructure requirement in a market which really struggles to get basic banking services. And why have we seen the collapse of the likes of Silicon Valley Bank, Silvergate, and Signature Bank? 
each of those cases have just one thing in common, which is that they had single points of failure. Um, in Silicon Valley Bank's case, the most visible, uh, there were major structural issues in the way they set up their balance sheet. Um, and uh, they, they simply didn't manage the rising interest rate environment uh, well, and uh, it was quite a basic bank ratio collapse situation. Silvergate and Signature were both um, arguably under the spotlight, pu- I mean, purely for the reason that they were servicing this digital asset industry, which the SEC is still very skeptical about and, frankly, a little angry about uh, post the events at the end of last year in which billions of dollars were wiped out uh, for irresponsible market behavior. So Silvergate Bank and Signature Bank were the cornerstones of the crypto industry for in, in terms of dollar flow. And um, in one instance, the SEC just didn't like the concentration of how many crypto companies had money on deposits. And in the other case, it was, honestly, people talk about Operation Choke Point, and there's, there is a little merit to that. It was, there was a little uh, heavy-handed reaction to those events. What does this mean for the crypto space moving forward? Do you um, expect trouble ahead? I mean, I have mixed feelings when we have major disruptive events in the crypto space. On the one hand, a lot of good, wholesome companies get caught up in the wake of the damage caused by the irresponsible behavior of a small number of companies. And that's not great. That collateral damage is uh, is difficult to witness and uh, and to see because you you know these are people that you know in the space. On the other hand, they provide really fresh uh, chance for for much better, much higher quality companies to grow. So, you know, I think in each of these big disruptive events, we see a clear out of some of the cowboy behavior that we've seen in in, in the years before, and an opportunity for much better set up, much better governed, um, more grown-up companies to to thrive. And what opportunities do you see this kind of um, presenting for BCB Group? So we've always been very well equipped to service the, let's call it these time zones, you know, UK, Europe, Switzerland, and, uh, you know, we we do 30-plus currencies. The one currency we've never really done particularly, uh, we've never really particularly invested in as a currency that we support is is USD, purely because we had partnerships with two of these uh, banks that failed, Silvergate and Signature, and those partnerships were fruitful, and we, you know, there was no market share justification. So we, I mean, now with Silvergate and Signature behind us, um, we are well equipped now to service this uh, this market. What that means is we can provide dollar business accounts for the crypto industry, which is really, really hard. And actually, this is this is actually new news. Um, uh, we're super excited about a new partnership with Access Bank, um, a uh, an amazing bank based in uh, San Diego, who. I mean, they they built things right. They've got an amazing structure. They've got great governance, and they all and they don't have anywhere near the kind of concentration that any of the other banks have had. Access are one of uh, five partnerships that were lining up again to provide resilience by distributing the risk across multiple depositories. Um, and this is what the crypto market needs. It needs no more single points of failure. It needs a better model in which risk is shared across a wider base and um, has more transparency better gate kept, you know, making sure that, that fewer of the cowboys can come in and, and spoil things for the rest of us again. How do these partnerships fit into your strategy and will there be more like these? So how they how these partnerships fit into our strategy is that these play right into the middle of our distributed risk strategy. Uh, you know, going back to the points about, you know, removing any single points of failure and making sure that 
the the crypto industry has a a place to move money that's not going to go away because of um, you know any single fault at any single institution. Um, this fits right into our strategy because it gives us an opportunity to show the market that we have a solution. We have a resilient way to manage very complex flow. You know, moving money in the crypto space is complex. It's not regular high street banking. It is um, the, the barriers are higher. The, the transaction monitoring requirements are higher. It's it's more difficult, but. If we can do this in a distributed way and we can model that and we can reproduce the formula that's worked so well in, in these time zones across to, to the West, um, the market wins by having a long-term partner and of course we win by being that partner. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. So I'm now joined by Rebecca Dib-Simkin, the Chief Product Officer at Octopus Energy. Rebecca, it's actually the third time you've been on the C-Suite podcast. <laughs> You seem to like me, right? uh, Obviously, yeah. But first time that we've met in person, bizarrely, because I should, I should just point out that we, uh, my company, Audair, produces your Inside Octopus podcast for yes. Octopus Energy. Yes. Um, but we've never met. We have spent hours together, us hours. But and we've literally never met. Exactly. We've never had a hug. Now we've had a hug. Indeed. So, so that's my first question. What brings the CPO of a energy company to a finance and fintech event? Well, I mean, I bloody love a bit of innovation. And it's really interesting to see what a different industry is doing in this space and I've talked about Octopus here you know in our journey from when I joined 40 people a tiny startup ramshackle office sharing a toilet to kind of where we are now which is 14 countries 30 million customers on our platform around the world so um, yeah I suppose there's a lot of startups here as well and it's exciting to be able to see people at the beginning of their journey too. Excellent now your session you were kind of talking about how you differentiate. Um, I mean, you, you know, you, you describe yourselves as a technology group as well as being a global energy company. And, and obviously that's kind of like what, what you were talking about. How is tech driving the way that energy reaches your customers? We were set up to be a new breed of energy company, one built around tech um, and all the benefits that you see from tech in other industries that have been disrupted by it. So if you think about Amazon, you think about Uber, you think about Tesla, these these were industries when companies came in and went, we think that tech and a focus on the consumer can make this better. And that's exactly what we've tried to do at Octopus, that you build a company enabled by a brilliant tech platform, which makes interactions easier for customers and helps our team. Um, a business which really put consumers uh, at the heart of, of, of what you do. And also with a really clear mission, you know, we want to move the whole planet to renewable energy because climate change is the biggest challenge of our time. Um, and all of those things work beautifully together. You mentioned how Octopus has changed since, since you've been there. I mean, the last few years, COVID, uh, war in Ukraine, obviously subsequent energy crisis. What is it that you guys are doing differently that's made that you've come through this in such a positive you know, position? We're a company built as I said, on tech, but on, on tech wrapped in the brilliance of humans, right? Tech doesn't work with humans, and our team is what's built our company. During COVID, we invested in our team. We didn't lay anyone out off. Uh, we grew by thousands of, of staff. Um, we worked more remotely. Uh, we invested in our people. Last year, we had 82,000 people apply for jobs with Octopus Energy. It really is about, you know, when times get tough, focusing back on your people where your talent is and, and using them to grow. Your first time here at Money 2020. Yeah, yeah. What's been your kind of key takeaway from being here? It's, do you know, it's, uh, it's really interesting. One of my uh, new colleagues who used to work in fintech said, you know, as confident as that you have to go to go, this one's pretty f 
fucking epic. And I do agree, actually, there's a real amazing vibe to it with kind of people trying new things. And it's quite exciting for me as more of a consumer on the fintech side to kind of see, you know, people talking about how technologies can to make can management and control of your money easier, which is exactly what we're trying to do in energy. So I've been quite inspired by being here. That might be the first time we have to use a beep on the podcast oh, for Money 2020. I did, I did wonder, I'm sorry, but you know, there we go. Yeah. No, show, look, for me, that shows enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah, I'm very enthusiastic. Rebecca, thanks so much uh, for joining us. I should say for um, any of our listeners, because I, I mentioned, we, I mean, we work together, I produce your Inside Octopus uh, podcast. A lot of what you've been talking about here, I'm assuming, obviously, is the stuff that we've covered on that yeah, show. Absolutely, yes. So please, if you want to find out more about what we're doing, it's a good place to start. Brilliant, yeah. So search for Inside Octopus on um, Apple, Spotify. Uh, but in the meantime, Rebecca Dibson-King, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for us. Much appreciated. Well, that wraps up this episode from Money 2020 Europe. Thanks again to all of our guests who took the time to chat with us today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'd love to hear any comments you may have on the topics we've covered. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do so on our Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn or Instagram. They are all linked from the top of the website at cspeakpodcast.com where you'll also find our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favourite podcast app. If you've enjoyed the show, please do give us a positive rating and review. And finally, if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, you can do that via the contact form on the website as well. Or you can find me, Russell Goldsmith, or Romy Wilson on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.